0: All right, if you would stand for the reading of God's Word. Today we're going to be in Matthew 18, verses 5 through 9. This is going to be on page 480 of the Bibles on the Table. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the ones whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, Cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. You guys can take a seat.
1: I want to begin with some prayer, particularly I would like to pray this morning uh, for those uh, with COVID and who are recovering from COVID. I know some of you guys have just uh, come out of recovering from COVID. We have some who are sick right now and not able to be with us. Um, Most of us know someone who is sick currently and not the least is, uh, the owners of the orchard who are currently, uh, down for the count with, with COVID. And, uh, so I'd like to pray in general and pray specifically, um, for them and for Joan, who, uh, is, is pretty, pretty sick with COVID right now. So let me pray. Lord, we know that you've created all things. We know that you sustain all things. We know that you are sovereign over all things. Lord, your word says that you're the great physician, and Lord, we, re- we lean into that reality right now as we pray for those who who are from us and who are around us who are sick right now, particularly with covid We pray for those who are recovering. We pray that that you would be with them in that recovery, that you would give them strength, that you would heal their bodies. We pray for those who are, uh, who are currently in the depths of sickness. God, we pray that, that even this morning that they would turn a corner, even this morning that their lungs would begin to work at greater capacity, that their minds would... Uh, be cleared of fog, that the, the pains and the aches, that they would begin to dissipate. We pray for loved ones who whose hearts are deeply heavy right now with concern for the people that they love who are sick. We pray for those who have lost people. Lord, we pray that that we might be a comfort to them in this time. We pray that we might come alongside of them and your hands and feet, and supporting them. But I pray that none of this would be without uh, without deeper effect, I suppose, on your church. That it uh, wouldn't merely be about physical ailment. but that you would use it to produce in us the holiness that we desperately need. Lord, I pray that our eyes would consistently be on you and on eternity. Lord, we have a different hope than the rest of the world. While we do not desire for anyone to be ill, we do not desire people to have pain and sickness Yet we approach it from a different perspective because we know that our hope is in you. We know that ultimately life is in you and not in the things of this world. But I pray that you would help us uh, to, to lean into that reality. I pray all this in your name. Amen. You know, a little over 15 years ago, I was reading a book for premarital counseling. And so if you've done premarital counseling with Amanda and I, you've probably heard this little story. Um, but we were reading a book for premarital counseling, and there was one single line in that book that profoundly changed how I saw marriage and profoundly uh, changed how I looked at life and faith. It was it was a paradigm shift kind of moment. I don't know if you've ever had those kinds of moments where it's not like maybe even it's something that's totally new to you, but the way in which it hits you, the way in which the Holy Spirit uses it, it completely adjusts your outlook. And that one question was this, what if your marriage isn't to make you happy, but to make you holy? What if your marriage isn't to make you happy, but to make you holy? Now, if you would have asked me, Cody, will you be happy all the time in your marriage? In the months leading up to a man and I getting married, I would have said, well, of course not. That's impossible. Of course, we won't always be happy and if you would have asked me, "Will your wife help you to be more like Christ?" I would have said, "Well, of course she. Will. She already has. Of course she will." But I have to be honest. If I could have avoided my own heart deceiving myself, the honest truth was that that happiness was a, if not the, key goal in my head and heart, for my marriage at that moment, before I read that line. And holiness was a hoped-for byproduct. I, I hope I get some holiness, but what I really want here is some happiness. But that question shifted everything. My wife and my marriage wasn't and isn't primarily for me. God wanted to use them to produce in me what he wanted, how he wanted for his glory. You see, there's a man-centric view of the world that leaks in to how we as believers View things, and it says that everything, everything at the core, is really to make us happy. That's what it's about. And and this view, I want you to know, it's not grounded in the Bible. It's grounded in humanism. It's grounded in materialism, and it's grounded in atheism. And yet, it's leaked. It's so pervasively in the church that we just kind of assume it to be true. Often without realizing it, it becomes the filter by which we judge everything. If this thing gives me good feels, or if I expect that it eventually will, then I'll keep it. If it doesn't, if I don't think it will anymore, then we toss it. Or if I think something else will do that better, then we'll trade up, right? And that's how we view basically everything at the core. At least if we're not aware. But that's not how Jesus and life in his kingdom and in his church ought to work. Paul doesn't say to the Thessalonians, this is the will of God, your happiness No, he says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. That's what it says. The same fundamental principle that's true for two believing spouses is true for relationships and conflict even within the church itself. The difference is, you don't have to go home tonight to me, right? You don't have to. It's a lot easier to leave your church than it is to leave your spouse. The temptation, I think, when conflicts happen in the church is to think that our time in that church has now become spoiled. Ah, oh, shucks. It's like it's like good leftovers that you forgot were in the back of the fridge, and you're like, ah, oh, dang, it's spoiled. Well, crud. I guess I'll just have to toss it out and... Eat something else. But if God designed all these things, God designed the way in which life right now works for believers to be such that we would be part of the body of Christ, part of a church, and if his will for us is that we would become holy right now, that we would be sanctified, what if those two things are not mutually exclusive? That's what I want you to consider this morning. What if he leaves us here in a community with other believers who are also still working towards holiness and sanctification in order that we would mutually benefit one another in that goal? And that mutual benefit is sometimes because we cause conflicts. What if conflict is one of the tools God uses to reveal the unsanctified edges of our lives so that one or both of us might grow in holiness from it? What if God is actually sovereign over everything? including your conflict. Here's the bottom line, guys. We must pursue holiness. If you walk away with nothing this morning, I want you to understand this. As believers, we must pursue holiness. And as we apply these verses, and as we go through this sermon series talking about what does life and conflict look like in the church. And as we examine Matthew 18, last week we looked at humility and, and what that means for life and conflict in the church. Today, as we look at holiness, what I want you to see is the crucial goal for Christians and the crucial goal of Christian conflict, conflict in the church, is holiness. And if we don't keep that as the goal... We will go astray in our conflict. So let me ask two questions this morning. What do we do about obstacles to holiness in Christian community? And then I want to ask you a second question. Is conflict then an obstacle or an opportunity for holiness? Is conflict, is the conflict that you are in right now, whatever that is, is it an obstacle or is it an opportunity for holiness? So first thing, first thing that's helpful to know as we look at these verses, verses five through nine in the in, in the text this morning, is that every time you see the word sin or temptation or temptations to sin, you are seeing different versions, different translations of the exact same Greek word, scandalon. It's the same word. Thus, in verses five and six, we see this contrast happening. There are those who receive one such child, that is, a disciple of Jesus, someone who believes and has put their trust in Christ and in his gospel, in his kingdom. And if, and if you receive one such child, it is as if you are receiving Jesus himself, Jesus says. And in contrast to that, or as opposed to that, are those who scandal on one of these children. It would be better, Jesus says, for them to have a stone tied around their neck and to be drowned in the water. Jesus, I'm going to be honest, if you didn't notice, he has some very strong language in these passages. And I think it's because it matters quite a bit. Scandalin, that word that we see that's translated sin, temptation to sin, temptation, It it, it literally means a stumbling block, a, a trap, a trip. We see the word used by Jesus in an interaction, kind of in the intermediate context, in Matthew 16, 21 through 23. If you were to flip back two chapters, what you'd see is this, Jesus standing before his disciples, standing with his disciples, he predicts his death and his resurrection, right? He he says, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to be killed. Do you remember this story? Peter takes Jesus aside, right? I love this. This is so, this is so Peter. He takes Jesus' side and he's like, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Okay. Okay, just ponder on this for a second. He says, he calls Jesus Lord, right? Like like master, like you're the guy in charge. You're the guy who knows. And then he says, but what you said is wrong. That, that That shouldn't happen. What's Jesus' response? Jesus famously responds, "Get behind me, Satan." Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You are a scandalon to me." Same word. What Peter was saying to him encouraged disobedience. It encouraged unholiness maybe in a different situation not suffer god's not calling every person to suffer and die on the cross right so it's not like he's saying hey uh, you should sin actively sin and something that's explicitly sin in the bible no he, but he's but he is telling jesus don't do something that would be obedience to god and jesus says get behind me Satan that's a stumbling block for me Jesus is saying in Matthew 18 is Peter it'd be better for you to be drowned than to say that to me so the translation temptation to sin or sin can can be a little bit misleading because it I think sometimes in our minds it draws the circle a little bit too tightly around what that means when I think of temptation to sin I think of one of those old like 1980s say no to drugs commercials you remember those You know, and you got some like really creepy guy that's like, hey, kid, you want some drugs? And they're like, no, say no to drugs. That's what I think of. I don't know why I'm messed up in the head. (laughs) And certainly that can be a stumbling block. But what we see is that it's not only someone tempting us to do something we shouldn't, but it's also someone hindering us from doing those things which we should do. So holiness or Christlikeness is more than simply avoiding sin. It sets us apart to actively pursue Christ, to actively pursue more and more godliness. It's not good enough to say, well, guys, I I, I go to church and I'm not doing these major sins. No, if you are not, if your heart is not oriented towards moving to Jesus, then whatever is hindering that from happening, that is a Scandalin. That is a stumbling block. With that in mind, the text gives us at least three answers to the question, what do we do about obstacles to holiness in Christian community? Three three answers that I want to bring out of the text. Number one, don't create obstacles for other believers. That should be obvious, Right? It should be obvious, and yet I think, I think we all struggle with it, right? Jesus transitions from our need for humility to the way that humility interfaces with other believers. We receive them. We welcome them, not because of some quality in them, but because of Jesus. If Jesus welcomes them as brothers and sisters, shouldn't we too? And that's... In contrast to this idea of creating obstacles, the assumption being that if someone is welcomed into this kingdom community, that welcoming is the opposite. Whatever welcoming is, it's the opposite of hindering them from holiness. So if your concept for welcoming people into the church, into community, is not opposite of hindering them from holiness... If you're welcoming them, is not welcoming them into deeper levels of Christ-likeness, then I don't think you're grasping what, what Jesus is talking about here. At least not fully. In other words, to receive someone is to encourage them towards Christ. And that's what the Christian community, that's what a church ought to be doing. What are some of these obstacles that we can create? Well, real quick, we can present sin as something less than sin. And we do this sometimes because we want to make people feel better or we want to kind of avoid some kind of offense. So we kind of talk softly about things that the Bible explicitly says is sin and we call it being nice or we call it being kind, but it leads them into more and greater sin. And that's not loving, that's lying. It keeps them, friends, from what truly satisfies more of Jesus. So presenting sin is something less than sin. Another way we do it is by, by abiding false teaching that undercuts the gospel. Again, here is a place where we really, you know, we don't want to embarrass someone. We don't want to make someone feel bad or, or whatever. And I think I think sometimes we're trying to exemplify the humility of verses 3 and 4 in this, and, and, and we just kind of go astray a little bit, but when Peter attempts to rebuke Jesus away from the heart of the gospel, away from his own death and resurrection, Jesus is really pointed and really clear. It's not because he doesn't love Peter. It's not because he doesn't want Peter to be one of his disciples. It's not because he just he just said, Peter had just confessed Christ and said, on that confession, I will build my church. So he's not rejecting Peter In fact, he does it because he loves Peter. To be clear, the intensity and speed of the rebuke relates to how close we are to gospel essential doctrines, right? Peter is cutting at the very, very core of what the gospel is. And so Jesus is just, boom, right to the point. Can't have that. Gotta get to that. Jesus was patient with Peter a lot if you read the Gospels, but not on this. Or, or take Paul. Paul is patient with a lot of sinful churches in his letters that he writes throughout the New Testament, but, but when it comes to the Galatians and how they're undercutting the Gospel by telling people that they had to be circumcised, well, what does Paul say? He says, well, I wish you'd go all the way. If I said that, you'd probably fire me as your pastor, I would guess. I'd be in some trouble. So, friends, we can't we can't present sin as something less than sin. We can't abide false teaching that undercuts the gospel. But also we can't discourage someone from difficult obedience. I think the third way that we oftentimes become a stumbling block to other believers is we discourage them from difficult obedience. There are times when God calls people to difficult things, and we may be tempted to tell them, you don't have to do all of that to be a Christian. And in fact, that statement may indeed be very true. They may not have to do all of that to be a Christian. That may not be something that God is calling every Christian to do, and yet it may be something that God is calling that Christian to do. Let me tell you. That if Amanda and I had not adopted Silas, we would have been in direct disobedience to God. But that does not mean that all of you should adopt a child. Right? That does not mean that every Christian must adopt to be obedient to God. But it would have been wrong for someone to discourage us from doing it because it wasn't required they would have been a hindrance, a stumbling block, a temptation to sin. In the Spirit, it leads individual believers to different applications of the positive commands of Scripture at times. One is called to be a missionary. Another is called to support the missionary. One is called to homeschool. Another is called to go into the workplace and be a light for Christ. One is compelled to get vaccinated or wear a mask, and another is compelled not to, and that's okay. Am I touching on a nerve yet? Number two, recognize that obstacles are inevitable. So, our first answer to the question is don't create obstacles for other believers. Our second answer is to recognize that obstacles are inevitable. Jesus says, Woe to the world for temptation to sin. Woe to the world for temptation to sin. He's talking to his disciples and he is declaring to them, he's informing them that his judgment is on the world for these obstacles to holiness. When he says woe to, that is a serious statement. You read through the entire New Testament, anytime Jesus is saying woe to, pay attention. We know then that these obstacles are evil, not good. But then he says something interesting. He says, but it's necessary for temptations to come. Hold on, wait a second. You see, while they're not good or to be desired, not only should we not be surprised by them when they come up, but they're even used by God for his purposes. Jesus reiterates, you don't want to be the one who causes them, right? But who, but the one by whom the temptations come, woe to them, and yet they will come. And I will use them. You see, though, in terms of our justification and our legal standing before God, we all come to faith on equal ground. In terms of our holiness and our sanctification, we don't all start in the same place. Can I get an amen? Right? I, I didn't, when I, when, when, when the Holy Spirit changed my heart and God saved me, I didn't start in the same place in terms of holiness as you started. And you didn't start in the same place as where I started, right? Right? Some of you grew up in solid Christian homes. Praise the Lord. Being in a Christian home didn't save you. Jesus saved you. And yet, that Christian home puts you on a footing, potentially, where you could start off a touch more holy than me when I started off in Christ, right? Right? You were taught to view the world through the lenses of Scripture. You were encouraged to create good habits of behavior that aligned with Scripture. You were emotionally, hopefully, nurtured, if it was a Christian home, nurtured in a way that reflected God as best as your parents could in their own holiness. And that is a benefit to you, right? But others grew up in very different situations. Some of you were taught to view the world very differently, than the Bible says. Some of you were taught that it was okay, even preferred to live in ways that that are abhorrent to God. And rather than being nurtured, you were dealt trauma upon trauma as you grew up. And you have more scandalin' because of that. There is more that is stumbling for you to stumble upon as you pursue Christ. And you have a longer path to travel, and I'm sorry for that. I hate that. But it is important for us to humbly recognize that we all don't have the same starting point. And please don't judge your starting point by someone else's middle point. I was talking about these epiphany moments, these paradigm shifting moments that God brings into my life every once in a while. I've had, by the grace of God, numerous of those over over 25 years of following Christ. It is absurd for me to think that someone who's only known Jesus for 25 days would understand everything the same way that I understand everything. So it's important to humbly recognize that we don't all have the same starting point, that some face more obstacles than others, and that we haven't all been dealt the same kind of stumbling blocks Either. One area is easier for you, and another area is easier for me, and vice versa. In some places, the circumstances of my life and the, the scandal on that I've been that's been thrown my way, they've they've made it harder and in some places easier. And that should cause us to consider ourselves with humility as we approach our fellow believers, the things that they're struggling with. As we receive them and encourage them towards holiness, but it cannot be an excuse for our sins, and I want to I want to be emphatic about this. That cannot be an excuse for our sins, and that brings me to the third the third thing here, the third answer to the question. We must attack our obstacles. We must attack our scandal. What does Jesus say? He says, if your hand and your foot cause you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and to be thrown into the hell of fire. You see, Jesus is speaking in hyperbolic language to make a critical point. He's not encouraging us towards self-mutilation here. He doesn't He does want us to understand the vast difference in comparative value between these two things. Think about all the things that would be more difficult in this life if you only had one hand or one foot or one eye. I can tell you my mother-in-law's only got one good eye. I'm glad she's not driving anymore, all right? It's a bad deal. Jesus is saying it would be incomparably better. Listen, it would be incomparably better to live without those things on earth and also have life eternal than to live with them on earth and go to hell. Now, in case this isn't drastic enough for you, I want you to understand something. Clearly, Jesus isn't talking about cutting sin out of your life here. Now, certainly he would say this about cutting sin out of your life, but that's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about here is getting rid of things that might cause sin. Hands and feet and eyes are not sinful. They're not inherently bad. But he's saying if they cause you to sin, you might wanna consider getting rid of it. You might be better off without it. A hand and a foot and an eye, they're, they're not wrong in and of themselves. Likewise, there are things in our life that aren't inherently sinful or bad, but you know, you know they lead you into sin, and you need to consider what Jesus is saying. He's asking you, is it worth it? And his answer is No. Now, some causes of sin are virtually universal, right? But for others, what causes them to be tempted may may not be a blip on someone else's radar. So I'd give give two cautions here as we think about this. As As you consider the things in your life that cause you to sin, that are stumbling blocks, that that hinder you from growing in Christ and whether or not those should be there or not, I want to caution us in two ways. First, I want to caution us, don't, don't use Christian freedom as an excuse to sin, okay? Just because another Christian isn't tempted to sin by that doesn't mean you ought to do whatever you want when you know it tends to be an obstacle for you. So check your heart. To make sure that it's more of Christ you want rather than more perceived freedom that you want. And if someone is calling something an area of freedom, friends, that's not actually an area of freedom, that's actually explicitly sin, then we need to confront them as brothers and sisters in Christ. So we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. Second caution is this, don't judge another Christian's freedom based on your lack of freedom. God may call you to cut something out of your life that's not expressly sin, but causes you to sin, and it is obedience for you to cut it out, but do not judge other people based on what God has called you to do, because it may be freedom for them. You understand what I'm saying? Uh, An easy example, if you struggle with alcohol and alcoholism, you probably shouldn't drink at all. I'll let the Holy Spirit do that work in you on that one. But do not look at someone else who can have a drink and it's not a problem and say, how sinful are they? And I use that as an example because I did that for years. I'll give you another example where I missed the mark. A number of years ago, a Christian friend of mine decided to sell his house, a house that was very comparable to the house that I lived in, and his family was smaller than mine, and decided it was time for them to sell their house and to build a a new house, a bigger house, a a custom-built home. And I remember struggling with it, thinking, he doesn't need a bigger house, I'm not going and getting a bigger house. You know, if he wouldn't build that, if he just stay in the house, there's it's plenty big enough for him by my view. He could live on so much less money. He could do this or that for God's kingdom. He, he could give more money to this or that. And then I began to assign sinful motivations to him. Motives that could have been true, though I didn't actually know that. Motives that were probably more a reflection of my heart than his heart. And so one day I'm driving down the street and I'm, you know, wrestling with this in my mind and my heart, and the Holy Spirit, it's like the Holy Spirit just like speaks to me, right? You know that 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 one of those moments again where you're just like it clicks. And, And what I what I thought was this, Cody, he is not you. The Holy Spirit is not calling him to the same things that the Holy Spirit is calling you to. It wasn't inherently sinful for him to build a new house, nor was it for him to stay in his old house. The only thing that was definitively sinful in that situation was my heart. That's the only thing that was definitively sinful. My covetous, covetous heart. It was sinful to judge him by what God was leading me to do. I had no reason to doubt that he and his wife hadn't prayerfully made the decision to build that house. Likewise, it would have been disobedient for me to use him as justification to sell my house and build one. Well, he's doing it, so it must be right for me to do it too, even though God hadn't called me to that. He'd called me to a different set of things. In the end, Even if my friend's new house was sin for him, it would not have been an excuse for my sin. And I needed to trust the Holy Spirit to work that out in his life. And if I had some clear evidence of sin in his life, then it was my obligation to speak into his life, but not before that. So, what does all this have to do with conflict? We might assume that all conflict is an obstacle. All conflict is a, a hindrance to holiness, but but Peter, Peter conflicting with Jesus by rebuking him, that was, right, a hindrance. But Jesus rebuking him back, calling him Satan, that was not a hindrance. In fact, that was the kind of conflict that in time, once Peter saw and understood the gospel that that rebuke actually enhanced his holiness. That conflictual exchange actually enhanced his holiness. Conflict, is it an obstacle or an opportunity? I think it depends on a few things. It can be either. Is your goal in conflict to be more like Christ? Because if your goal is to not be more like Christ, if it's some other goal, then it will be an obstacle. But if your goal in conflict is to be more like Christ, it will become an opportunity. If we will listen to the rebuke of others, if our if our goal is holiness, then we will listen to the rebuke of others, right? And even conflict that's brought on by others' sins... We'll, we'll look for ways in that to strive for our holiness and their holiness, right? Even though we make stupid mistakes due to our ignorance in the way that we relate to one another, and that creates conflict if we are both pursuing holiness, then with humility and the help of the Holy Spirit, we can fumble our way to greater Christ-likeness. I've seen it. I've lived it often. I have a lot of ignorance in these things. If holiness is the goal, then we will listen to Matthew 7, 3 through 5, and we will look at that potential conflict as an opportunity first to check our own eye and make sure there isn't something there. So are we willing to engage conflict in order to be an obstacle to obstacle? This is, this is another question. whether it, Is it an obstacle or is it an opportunity? Well, are we willing to engage conflict in order to be an obstacle to the obstacles. There's a difference between picking a fight unnecessarily and engaging something that seeks to do damage to those we love, that seeks to do damage to God's church. Our vision of the kingdom in this yet sinful world must include active resistance to the patterns of this world. We must do it in humility and we must do it seeking holiness, but we must. Do it. We cannot stand by while the little ones are tripped up and stumbling and say, my hands are clean. It didn't come from me. Our very recognition of the obstacles and our lack of action implicates us. We can't excuse the sin of pride in our hearts by calling it fighting obstacles, but we also can't excuse our selfish inaction by calling it humility. In fact, what we'll see in the next week or two is that we have a God-given responsibility to our fellow believers and particularly to those who are in the same flock as we are who stray. And so here's another question on whether that will that, that determine whether conflict is an obstacle or an opportunity. Do you trust that God can redeem conflict? Some of you are going through circumstances right now, and they're causing you to stumble. They're obstacles. They're feeding doubts and they're feeding unbelief. You have conflict with someone and it's been frustrating. The conflict, maybe it's within you. You're being tempted. You feel hopeless, trapped in it. The question is, will you lay all those things at the foot of the cross? Will you surrender those earthly things to the will of the Father as Christ surrendered his life to the will of the Father? Do you trust that God can resurrect those areas of your life to the sanctification of you and the glory of God? Will you trust that the holiness of God produced in you is indeed better than some perceived happiness? You see, Peter wrongly confronted Jesus, but Jesus didn't abandon him, did he? He didn't say, I can't believe this would happen. Next time I go off to pray on my own, I'm gonna sneak off and find a new 12 disciples to hang out with. They won't be so stupid. Rather, he told them again and again how he would die and rise again. He told them again in chapter 17, and he told them again in chapter 20 of Matthew. He tells them again and again and again, and he weaves it all through this section of Matthew where Jesus is explaining what life in the kingdom looks like because life in the kingdom revolves around the gospel. So there's constant reminders that the, the gospel ought to, ought, ought to guide how we live, that, that though the powers of this world come against Christ, even to the point of death, Jesus wins. And he can. He can redeem whatever conflict you're going through. And so we must pursue holiness. But I thought you said it was about the gospel. I thought Jesus just forgives my sins. You know, that makes me feel good, but this holiness talk, it kind of makes me uncomfortable. That sounds like work. It is. Listen, if you take holiness out of the gospel, then there's no gospel. What problem does the gospel address if not our sinfulness and need for holiness? What was necessary for Christ? to be sufficient, a sufficient sacrifice for our sins, if not the holiness that, we, that was required of us that we could not live. And what was given to us by way of the cross, not by anything that we did, but only by what Christ did, if not his righteousness and holiness. This was exchanged for our unrighteousness and our unholiness. And what is commanded of us now as believers, if not to be holy, not holy to earn something, but holy because of what Christ has already earned for us. And what does Ephesians 5 promise that Jesus as the groom will do for his bride? Is it to make her completely happy? No, it's to make her pure and blameless and spotless before him. It's to make us holy. That's what marriage is about. That's what the church is about. Listen, if you want to go to a church whose primary driving purpose is to make you happy, you are at the wrong church. That's not going to happen here. But if you want to go to a church where the pastor cares that you grow in holiness and become more like Christ, then stay here. I'm going to screw up a lot of things because I'm still on the way, too. But I'm trying. Listen, that doesn't mean that we're left with just an unsatisfying existence here. In fact, the very reason that God is producing this holiness in us is that in the end, that holiness will actually bring us a satisfaction that's unspeakable. We as the church, we as Christians ought to typically and eventually be more happy and satisfied than anyone else. And I found this amazing thing happens. And it's so counterintuitive to our sinful hearts and minds. The more that Amanda and I focus on holiness, not on happiness. Not only do we grow in holiness through our marriage, but our marriage actually grows more satisfying. It's crazy. If it wasn't in the Bible, then I wouldn't know what to do with it because it doesn't make sense to me, and yet it happens. It's a paradox. The paradox of God's kingdom is that if we pursue holiness in him, we will find delight in him, even if it's different than we expected, but when I choose not holiness, that's when I screw everything up. And if we pursue happiness as the ultimate goal, we will short-circuit God's processes for making us holy because they seem to hinder our happiness, and we will fail to grow holy, and we will fail to find ourselves satisfied. I promise you. Here's why. Because that thing we think will satisfy us, that thing we think that will make us happy, it was never actually meant to fulfill the happiness that we long for. It was never meant for that. It was only meant to point us to the one who does. And you cannot, you cannot rightly enjoy the things of this world as You ought, unless you allow them to point you past them to the creator and then look back on them from that perspective. Only then can you find satisfaction in them.